0: All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to our second week of 11th Hour, or if you're new, our first week. Um, A couple quick things. Please turn off and silence or silence your cell phones uh, if you haven't done so already. And also at the end, if we have time for questions, I'll run around with the microphone so we can hear each other and we can record your wonderful questions. As writers, we are all collectors. We listen, we witness, we remember. We are always taking notes, a line of dialogue, a place, an image, even a single word. All of it goes into some mysterious bank. At the end of the day, we cannot simply collect for the sake of it. It must amount to something, one way or another, on the page. Today, Sabrina Ora Mark will teach us how to build that bank up and ultimately how to mine it. Sabrina earned a B.A. from Barnard College, an M.F.A. from the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and a Ph.D. from the University of Georgia. She is the author of the book-length poetry collections, The Babies, winner of the Saturnalia Book Prize, and SimSum, as well as the chapbook, Walter B.'s Extraordinary Cousin Arrives for a Visit, and other tales. Her awards include a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and a fellowship from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Her poems have been included in the Best American Poetry 2007 and the anthology, Legitimate Dangers, American Poets of the New Century. Please join me in welcoming Sabrina Orimark.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, So welcome to my failed experiment. I'm going to start start with that. Um, And I'm going to be sort of hiding over here behind my images, which I like to do. Um, So uh, over the past few months, I have like a crow gone from poet to poet, asking them for their trash, their rust, their fading lines, lines on the verge of decomposition. In this lecture, I will present The Teetering Heap, The Tower of Compost, and ask, as writers, how do we differentiate the the junk from the treasure? How do we choose what to keep and what to throw away? What grows out of our debris? A humming? A hymn? A nothing? I've been told if you stare into the dumpster long enough, eventually eyes are something like eyes begin to stare back. Um, So how do we choose what lines to keep and what to throw away? I'm going to read some of the lines of um, the poets um, who I had collected. Um, Some promised me their lines and never sent them. Um, Some couldn't stop sending me their lines. Many, many, many ignored me completely. Um, And Ariana Rains sent me a photo of a dumpster named Liberty, which solved the whole riddle before I even began writing, but I carried on. There's the photo. One poet told me he's keeping his trash, thank you very much, A few sent me edits asking me to tweak their drek. Some regretted saying yes. It was all very shameful. The lines piled up on top of each other like a big mistake. And I would look at them out of the corner of my eye thinking, what am I going to build out of this? And these lines really could care less about me. So I'm just going to show you the lines that I collected. Um, It might be a little bit hard to see, um, but I'll read them. Um, Rachel Zucker sent me a whole poem, um, and the lines that were crossed out were, I forgive you, I believe you, I know you. Um, D.A. Powell sent me, Plain as the flesh on cold poultry. Jenny Brown sent me. The truck stop was a good map or so north of those hills named, I'm sorry, the truck stop was a good nap or so north of those hills named for bread with sugar. The driest place in the world, and it has rained for two weeks straight. Jennifer Militello sent me, what came came and the arrow with my name on it missed. Erin Coonan sent me, she does not ask for what she does not need because what is more painful than asking? Tracy Brimhall sent me, and while the soldiers guarded the doors, the ring of candles burned down on the tearful, awed faces of the crowd like the, police, the police's love for the citizen, like the torturer's respect for the civilian, like the judge adjusting the noose around the throat of the condemned with his own lovely, pale hands. Jericho Brown sent me, we don't know if it was raining, but we know umbrellas. We know umbrellas were involved. He told me he may need the line back. Um, C.A. Conrad, who is probably the most enthusiastic about the whole project, sent me, Crows watch us. Call the cat, Frank, Frank, but they know he's in the stomach of the sleeping fox. Vitamins from sex and apples tore our veins to feed ourselves. Frank's fat formed on cream and fish now fills the fox. Uh, Mark Leidner sent me, Don't worry. Their guns are probably made of wood and loaded with flowers. Goodbye, blizzard. I was colder than you, and your winds warmed me. Robin Schiff sent me the histidine jaw of the sandworm. Eduardo C. Corral sent me I had no use for the things scattered around him. Far from Tucson, the moon is an animal. Nick Flynn, um, sent me, I know so little and all I know is wrong. Sometimes you pass, and then a couple of days later he sent me, sometimes you pass a pile of feathers in a field and instinctively look look up into the empty sky. Terence Hayes sent me, say hello to our tone Jeff janitor at the Y, sliding a mop of wet blue yarn where the members slop, Kirsten Kashak sent The Stone Stood in a Blue Frock Studying the Contours of the inquis- Inquisitors face as One Must. And then Ben Lerner um, sent me Let's take drugs and admire the striations in the freestanding wall of onyx door Photographed over several days in Barcelona, let's go deeper into the suspension of our lives, wearily delivering ourselves up to the camera, be absolutely present for one another. In Barcelona, drawing a finger across my gums, let's put a premium on sheer visibility and take the funicular down to the beach. There are some really cool people eating squid, We can find non-judgmental anarchists willing to show us around on their mopeds, but don't look down. There's a baby on your chest, socks on its hands so it doesn't scratch itself. There is an albino pigeon demanding a role in the multi-year come down awaiting us all. Barcelona, cave filling with computer music. Barcelona, in an earlier draft, I had Cyprus. And I don't know if that was a... Note within or a note without. Let's delay orgasm to the point of pain as part of the struggle against the pigeon. And Josh Bell, who, when I wrote to him, said, um, when I said, I have come for your trash, he said, finally, um, <laughs> sent me, text me, Ramon Fernandez, if you know. And then another line, you're not as cold as robo mice. And then another line, not jazz but cheerleading. Um, So that's what I got. And it seemed to me that many of the lines refer to the body and what has not happened and what was missed. And many of the lines refer, it seems, to not knowing and failure um, and an inability to to decipher, a question not asked. Um, And many of the lines seem to refer to things off in the distance as if the thing has not yet quite come into focus um, so here is what I made it's 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 a failed poem it's more failure but this is what I made um, my original intention was to use all the language completely like to have to completely depend on the heat but I cheated And I lied, and I stole, and here we go. So you say, the moon is a stone in a blue frock. And I say, I know so little. And I say, I was colder than you. And you say, all I know is wrong. Their guns were made out of goodbye wood, you say. You say, the blizzard. I say, there are some really cool people here. The crow says, let's go deeper into the wet blue yarn. The crow says, be absolutely present one another. But there's a baby on your chest, you say. I do not ask the arrow with your name on it for what I do not need. I do not ask the crows. What is more painful than asking? A noose for two weeks straight, you say. Sometimes you pass a pile of feathers in a field and look up at the empty sky. You had no use for the things scattered around me. The dumpster's name is Liberty. Fish now fills the fox." So that's what I had come up with, um, sort of pulling pulling all the language um, into another heap-like thing. Um, So here is an image of an albatross's intestinal track filled with marine debris. And I was identifying very much with this image. um, And I think collecting poets track is actually not a good idea. I started feeling like this albatross. Um, But then I thought about Joseph Cornell's pharmacy, where colored sand and speckled shells and maps and newspaper clippings, scraps of tow, dry and crumbled things, and cork live inside this miniature apothecary like medicine for the imagination, and so I kept kind of going back and forth between this image and this image, one being a kind of poison and one feeling like a kind of elixir. The image is seem to very much be in conversation and look eerily similar to each other, even the colors. So how do we differentiate between the flotsam and the jetsam? How do we differentiate between the poison and the elixir? Um, How do we differentiate between what drowns us as writers, like the lines that um, um, just pull us down, Um, and um, and which lines like a life raft keep us afloat I'm going to keep asking that question and never answering it Um, Walter Benjamin um, talks about the poet as the collector and likens the poet to a kind of rag picker and he writes Here we have a man whose job it is to gather the day's refuse in the capital. Everything that the big city has thrown away, everything it has lost, everything it has scorned, everything it has crushed underfoot, he catalogs and collects. He collates the annals of intemperance, caphanium of waste. He sorts things out and selects judiciously, very much like the writer. He collects like a miser, guarding a treasure, refuse, refuse, which will assume, refuse which will assume the shape of useful or gratifying objects between the jaws of the goddess of industry. This description, he writes, is one extended metaphor for the poetic method, as Baudelaire practiced it. Ragpicker and poet both are concerned with refuse. So how do we choose what to keep and what to throw away? William Faulkner says, kill your darlings. I say, drag your dead darlings around with you everywhere you go and try to prop them up in everything you write and see how they do as ghosts. Nabokov writes, I have rewritten often several times every word I have ever published. My pencils outlast their erasers. And Gertrude Stein writes, The author of all, and this is in Tender Buttons, the author of all that is in there behind the door and that is entering in the morning, explaining, darkening, and expecting, relating, is all of a piece. The stove is bigger. It was of a shape that made no audience bigger. If the opening is assumed, why should there not be kneeling? And I love that. If the opening is assumed, why should there not be kneeling? Like, if there's some, you know, some doorway to go through, you should crawl through. Any force which is bestowed on a floor shows rubbing. This is so nice and sweet, and yet there comes the change. There comes the time to press more air. This does not mean the same as disappearance. Um, which kind of return this, this question of, this does not mean the same as disappearance for me, very much returns me to the albatross, right? The thing that is like no longer in our possession actually appears elsewhere, but in an, a different choreography. Um, Lucy Brock Broido, in an interview with Carol Miso, talks about rescuing a sonnet from a prose poem. Um, And she writes, Sometimes, when a student can't write, I suggest writing a blathering, indulgent, bubbling, frothing mess of a prose poem, and then you put on the rubber gloves, put your hand down into it, and get out a sonnet. Like the time in the middle of the night that I dropped my only set of car keys down the toilet at a rest stop on the Massachusetts Turnpike, How to Retrieve the Glittering Key asks Carol Meso, and she says, yes, how to retrieve. And even if you don't have rubber gloves, you've got to get the key, or you're not going home. Um, and I love this idea of like rescuing a sonnet from the belly of a prose poem. So this is a poem from Oney Buchanan's The Mandrake Vehicles. It's a living, moving poem. This is just one section of it. Um, And you can see over here how the poem is almost literally shedding its own skin and forming um, words at the bottom. Um, And the way that she describes the project of the Mandrake vehicles, um, she writes, it consists of three vehicles and they depend on Um, the anatomy of the mandrake root. And she said each one surfaced with a large text block concerning the biological development, folklore, occult ritual, magical association, and homeopathic usages of the mandrake plant. The surface text blocks can be read linearly from one to the next however each surface text also conceals a depth of two additional poems as well as liquid layers when the letters are in a transitional state and so the letters the the words themselves are like always transforming in each vehicle both of these inner poems have technically been visible all along in the top layer but remain undetected because of the presence of the other letters and characters. The inner poems of each vehicle are unearthed as letters drift off the surface of the poem and the remaining letters solidify into new poems. In addition to the relationships created between the contents of the three poems of each vehicle, relationships are also forged between words of the different layers that share the same letters in the liquid layers, letters cast off scales of themselves which fall down the screen, colliding with other cast-off scales um, to form the detritus words, the trash cast off by the process. And so here we go with that. It's, you can actually if, um, find the entire poem online um, and it's really beautiful moving from poem to poem and sort of watching like a poem actually um, transform and decay um, so thinking about this lecture um, I, st- I started really thinking about um, uh, how things are disposed of and specifically how human tissue is disposed of and I remember how the great poet Heather McHugh after losing her father um, told us two things one that the weight of her father's ashes was the same as his birth weight um, and that she often and then she wondered aloud why we were not allowed to keep the bones of our mothers and fathers it seemed like an existential right. I often thought, you know, where would, where would we keep those bones? Um, so in the classic Dr. Seuss book, um, did I ever tell you how lucky you are? There's this page with this wire hanger, um, and, it, and it reads I don't know if you guys can see it But it reads Thank goodness for all of the things you are not Thank goodness You're not something forgot And left all alone in some Punkerish place Like a rusty tin coat Hanger hanging in space I mean This is, this is a children's book <laughs> And it's I, For me like one of the most terrifying Scenes in all of American literature Um, and I started thinking yeah like thank goodness I I do I do feel lucky I'm not that hanger it sounds like something my mother would say to me but that um, but at the same time for me as a writer that rusty tin coat hanger hanging in space is mighty interesting Um, and I don't know who discarded that guy um, but I feel like that's a guy I would not discard so how do we choose what to keep and what to throw away? Um, there's a Margaret Atwood has a short story called Hairball. Um, and in it, Kat, the protagonist, instructs her doc- doctor to give her the ovarian cyst that he removes from her body. And then she gifts it to the man who betrays her. Um, and I'm just going to read to you guys a little section from Margaret Atwood's Hairball. She'd made the doctor promise to save the thing for her, whatever it was, so she could have a look. She was intensely interested in her own body and anything it might choose to do or produce. And then later on, the hair in it was red, long strands of it wound round and round inside like a ball of wet wool gone berserk or like the guck you pulled out of a clogged bathroom sink drain. There were little bones in it, too, or fragments of bone. Bird bones, the bones of a sparrow crushed by a car. There there was a scattering of nails, toe, or finger. There were five perfectly formed teeth. And then later on, she asked for a bottle of formaldehyde and put the cut-open tumor into it, It was hers. It was benign. It did not deserve to be thrown away. She took it back to her apartment and stuck it on the mantelpiece. She named it Hairball." And then, later on, towards the end of the story, she says, "'Hairball, you're so ugly. Only a mother could love you.'" She feels sorry for it. She feels lost. Tears run down her face. Crying is not something she does, not normally, not lately. Hairball speaks to her without words. It is irreducible. It has the texture of reality. It is not an image. What it tells her is everything she's never wanted to hear about herself. This is new knowledge, dark and precious and necessary. It cuts and I do think about that like how there are some images as writers that kind of like follow you around and I often will have the experience of, of thinking just like go away just stop bothering me and often that image um, is trying to reveal something um, that I am not yet ready um, to know. Later on in the story Uh oh, the wrong page got thrown away. Oh, here we go. Okay, cat um, takes a taxi, and, and this is this is later. Cat takes a taxi to the David Wood Food Shop and buys two dozen chocolate truffles. This is when she gifts the cyst to her, the lover that betrays her. She has them put into an oversized box, then into an oversized bag with the store logo on it. Then she goes home and takes hairball out of its bottle. She drains it in the kitchen strainer and pats it damp dry tenderly with paper towels. She sprinkles it with powdered cocoa, which forms a brown pastry crust. It still smells like formaldehyde, so she wraps it in saran wrap, and then in tin foil, and then in pink tissue paper, which she ties with a mauve bow. She places it in the David Wood box in a bed of shredded tissue with the truffles nestled around. She closes the box, tapes it, puts it into the bag, stuffs several sheets of pink paper on top. It's her gift, valuable and dangerous. It's her messenger. But the message it will deliver is its own. It will tell the truth. To, wh- to whoever asks. It's right that Gerald should have it. After all, it's his child, too. She prints on the card, Gerald, sorry I couldn't be with you. This is all the rage. Love, Kay. So when my brother was five years old, he jammed his finger in a door and his fingernail turned black and fell off and he saved it in a tiny glass vial for 12 years in 1996 the same brother participated in the march of a living, in the march of the living along with 5000 other jewish children he marched through auschwitz majdanek Birkenau and Treblinka. The march is a march of remembrance. Um, the march can also be read through through Walter Benjamin's Angel of History as one large face turned toward the past. They would like, and then this is Benjamin. They would like to stay awake in the dead and make whole what has been smashed, but they keep moving. So a few years ago, my brother told me a story about a quiet, shy boy who he marched beside. He remembers this boy upon their arrival at Auschwitz, taking a child's shoe from a mountain of shoes and shoving it into his pocket. My brother remembers the boy not knowing why he had done this, as if the task of collector was thrust upon him strangely and suddenly. The boy was compelled to take something, to save something, to keep something. The story continues that the boy carried the shoe around with him for the duration of the march, occasionally turning to my brother nervously because not only did he not know what compelled him to lift the shoe from its last resting place, but he also did not know what, at the end, to do with the shoe. I imagine the shoe being carried from one camp to the next like a wrong visitor without use or meaning. The boy becomes many things at once, collector, destroyer, architect, and finally a new architecture that marks an erasable trace. The boy's hand reaching out to take the shoe is its own monument. If the hand lifting the shoe up were to be frozen in time and space, like a piece of steel or a block of wood, it becomes for us a wake up call that the collector is complicit in destruction or prying, but also in a destruction that makes a new redemptive kind of architecture um, uh, and a new d- dwelling place for a new kind of discourse. So, however criminal and strange the lifting up of the shoe may seem, the act seems to return the shoe into. It's necessary wandering exile. We have to deal with it again, um, which reminds us that history has no final resting place and isn't to remind, after all, the task of the writer. Benjamin writes, to articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way it really was. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up in a moment of danger. So a few weeks after hearing the story, I was telling it and retelling it. And then somebody told me the, sh- the story was impossible, that the shoes of, at Auschwitz are behind glass. And I began to wonder if, in the crisis of witnessing, my brother had imagined this whole story. So I called him up. And I said, remember the story you told me about the boy who stole a shoe from Auschwitz? And he said, yes. And I said, I was told it was impossible. The shoes are behind glass. And he said, no. When I was there, I remember there was nothing between us. And I said, are you certain? And he said, maybe they put them behind glass later. And I said, after 1996. And then he said, or maybe he took it from Medinic. It was a long time ago. I forget. It was a strange time. It was Medinic. Wait, it's blurry. Can you call them? Can you ask? The story about this shoe is wounded. And like the shoe itself, the story is now taken from its grave and put back into circulation. My brother's story now wanders back and forth in exile between the imaginary and the real, not unlike the rusty coat hanger in the Dr. Seuss book. It is cut off from the comprehension of its surroundings. Can you call them, my brother asked. Can you ask? This request at the time seemed very odd. Who exactly? would I call? What could I possibly ask? For a moment, I actually considered calling Auschwitz. And in searching for a number, I was struck with the absurdity and the grotesqueness of the task, as if there was a single answer to end my searching. And who exactly, in God's name, I wondered, would answer? So this is an image of the shoes behind glass at Auschwitz. And here's a photo of the shoes at Medinek. So while writing this lecture, my son Noah broke his arm. And the cast is off now. And they asked when they took the cast off if Noah wanted to keep it. um, And he said yes. And I have no idea what to do with it. My therapist suggested we fill it with candy, seal it up, and then beat it like a pinata in some sort of celebration of healing. It's fluorescent green and waterproof, and it's bent at the elbow like a boy's arm. Not like a boy's arm, but like my boy's arm. But it's hollow now. I don't know what to do with it. It's on the dashboard of my car, and the summer sun keeps beating down on it, and it emits this sort of fine green dust. While writing this lecture, I throw out 10-year-old's makeup, two outdoor chairs, the seats had caved in, a trampoline, my favorite coffee mug, which broke into pieces, and a pair of sneakers. I give away my son's crib and a changing table. He no longer needs them. Those things are in the past. My grandfather, a Holocaust survivor, died last July. My mother gave me his favorite wool cardigan. It's the color of a forest in winter. I wear it sometimes, as if I am where my grandfather's body belongs. When I first got it, I found three breadcrumbs in the pocket, and I took the breadcrumbs and I put them in this small tin can that sits beside my bedside table. I know this sounds like a fairy tale, but it isn't. So that's what I have for you guys today. Um, so there's time for questions.
2: Uh, yes, could you just repeat the, uh, the author and the title of that dynamic poem of the words dropping down?
1: Oni Buchanan. So it's O-N-I is the first name, and then Buchanan, B- B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N and uh, the Mandrake Vehicles, Mandrake Vehicles. Yeah, Thank you. you're welcome.
3: So once you collect all these uh, pieces, how do you write your own poems? Presumably you collect your own and then how do you make that transition from these random pieces into a complete poem
1: well I think that we're always sort of engaged um, at all times in this kind of collecting right like you find an image but then you say I'm going to use this image or I'm not going to use this image right I will keep this image or I will not keep this image and I think um, you know, one of the things that I found in the lines that the other poets had sent me was that there was something kind of, um, I mean, there were some lines that I think were really quite beautiful, but there, they had this sort of, um, they didn't seem alive at all to me. Um, and I think sometimes, like we know when our image image is actually breathing, like when it makes a kind of like humming, and when it doesn't. I mean, in terms of like composition, so much, you know, depends on form, right? Like you start collecting all of the pieces, and then the question becomes, like, are you going, um, are you going to get the albatross? Um, you know, are you are you gonna get the apothecary? And those are two different kinds of forms that we can imagine to sort of like house our writing, right? Um, so so in so so in collecting there's that um, the task of like what do we keep and what do we discard but then also like what shape does it start taking, right? Like what's the body? Is it a sonnet, is it a prose poem, is it a novel? Um and and I think that's for each individual writer to like always be asking themselves. Should I just apologize? I feel like I oh, i <laughs>
0: Now, when you write, you think you you used the word several times, and you gave us this in images. So you're you're thinking visually,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you're also thinking uh, orally. A U R. Yeah. You're also thinking of the sound. So, are, but when you're collecting, uh-huh. are you collecting both of are you collecting sounds, are you co- and then you're collecting images? Are you collecting little bits of images, like that one red thing in the middle there? What is that? You know? Do you just do you have a list of the things you collect, or are they just constantly floating around in your brain?
1: Well, I mean, my note my notebooks, you know, like. Are just filled with images and words and pieces of things and grocery lists and you know there is a kind of um, um, I am very drawn to the collage um, you know and I think that we can kind of I think uh, Joseph Cornell's work is very much in conversation with the collage um, but but I think that you know the other thing to keep in mind about the image or you know how we decide what to keep and what to throw away I keep thinking about the Margaret Atwood story, Hairball, where like the cyst begins in her own body right and then it becomes something that she keeps and then it kind of like hovers through the story like it's there on the mantelpiece in the jar with really no use at all um, for a long period of time until finally it becomes like the 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 vehicle for rage to to express rage right but like you need the time to go by i think in order for the cyst to go from the body into the jar onto the mantelpiece and then become a kind of embodiment a gift that it is an embodiment of rage and so um, you know, and that's kind of like how we start imagining narrative, right? Like you hold on to that image and then you kind of follow it and you see where it will take you, and sometimes it leads you to the garbage dump, but sometimes like it leaves it it, it 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 leads you to some sort of place of illumination. Which is not to say the garbage dump is not a place of illumination, but yeah.
4: I'm pretty sure I don't have a coherent question out of this, but I've been fascinated by this and, and worrying in my mind over the, the distinction between the stuff that we find uh, in the streets, the stuff that Cornell found various places, the, the objects that are um, maybe worthless, uh, and the, the lines that poets have written and then discarded. Mm-hmm. and and i'm finding myself uncertain as to how to sort those out is there a, is there a fundamental identity between the the stuff that we find around which i'm a big believer in of mm-hmm. gathering of all writers gathering stuff every day that they that it was not meant to be gathered mm-hmm. probably and the artifact where we're trying to make something out of language and then we decide um, that's not interesting enough, or it doesn't belong, and I don't. Right. That's as close as I can come, I think, to a to a question. Right.
1: So, um, so I will have an incoherent answer for you, but no. <laughs> um, uh, so the question is how? How do we know? Is that the question? Or
4: my question is. Well, are you the same sort of thing or the same class of things? Mm-hmm. The, the discard that an artist makes right, right. Is something that seems like a failed lie, right. it doesn't
1: go And the stuff of the world right, right, that
4: right. gets into our guts.
1: Right. Um, and, uh, what I'm
4: wondering is right. are they on some fundamental. Right.
1: I mean, it's a beautiful question, and I think that, you know, um, one thing that I had tried to do was, like, pick up the poet's lines, you know, as I would pick up a discarded image. Um, I, I, it was very uncomfortable. Um, I was, frankly, it was, there was a lot of shame involved, I have to say. It was very bizarre, because I was you know writing to poets who i very much admire i mean every single one of those poets or you know they were they they were all my favorite poets um and i i it was very strange to say like may i rummage through your garbage um and and then for like a month i had these lines and i was like i don't want to do anything with them you know this is Just not, um, this is not working. And then what happened sort of like in its place, like instead of writing the poem out of this heap, what I started doing was I started just thinking about like all of these different images that somehow, and stories that somehow, um, you know, um, brought to mind that question of what, you know, what should we be keeping and what should we be throwing away Um, and so and then I was reminded of the story that my brother told me about the shoe um, which like I've I've carried, I mean talk about carrying something around with you like I've carried that story around with me for a very long time and I have not known what to do with it, like I've wanted to do something with it but it doesn't seem to be in certain ways of any use at all and so I think that um, whereas some of the poets were very very certain that these lines were of absolutely no use but other poets told me that they may need them later on And then other poets were editing, like were sending me edits. So they were still thinking about it, and maybe in asking them for their debris, I kind of like return. I what I what I was trying at least to do was to return the the castaway line back into circulation, and then see what like what would happen. Um. So yeah.
0: There's so much in your talk this morning and it's um, what I'm getting so much is that, that the combination of the objects and the things are are, are metaphors it in poetic writing right. they're valuable as metaphors and and uh, it's really a crossover between what we've seen is a crossover between visual art and the written word mm-hmm. um, but I, and I, I guess what I would really love to know is, is how, uh, for instance, in your writing, how uh, do you ever find that you take something out of your own poems, but you use that image in another poem, or you mm-hmm. use it later, or you y- y- sometimes you, you 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 don't kill your darling as you say, you you tuck it away and use it later.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I remember when I was in graduate school, um, uh, our, my professor Mark Levine said. Oh, here's the line again, you are you know, you guys have been... Um, uh, it's as if you've dragged the line around with you everywhere you go Like it's some sort of corpse propping it up in everything you write Trying to see if it could, can it live in this piece, can it live in that piece So I think um, definitely, I mean there are definitely places where like I will um, I will write like an entire piece and it will just completely not work and crumble but then you start like running in like with some as some sort of rescue attempts and being like I can grab this line this line this moment this name maybe this character this figure is not breathing inside of this space but like like let me Pull this guy into another space. So there's a lot of that. There's like a lot of cutting up and rearranging. And I'm also really glad you brought up this idea of metaphor because, like, metaphora, right? Like, if you go to Greece on moving trucks, it says metaphora, and it's like literally the act of taking the belongings of one house, right, and bringing it into the house of another, right, like. Emptying the contents of one body and storing it into the body of another, and like in many ways, you know, this sort of like the rearrangement of um, uh, um, trash or dr- junk or debris or drack, um, you know, is in many ways in conversation with the act of metaphor, right? Like you. Pluck all these little images and moments out, or like the spool of thread that you know the plastic spool that's in the albatross's body did not start off in the albatross's body, right? And then you store it there um, to sort of tell a different story, some other story, or you know you store the 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 ovarian cyst in a in a um, in a um, piece of chocolate to tell a different story.
4: Thank you for your talk this morning. Yeah. Uh, you called your the poem uh, from the Dreck. You called your own poem a failure. Yeah. Uh, but I I w- I wonder why. And is right. it a is it a failure or is it a poem of failures or is there some way to to think about that?
1: Yeah. I you know I had a really hard time with it. I did not enjoy doing it at all. Um, I don't really think it ended up saying anything, bringing, um, I don't think it brought those lines to any better place than they had begun inside. Um, I also think that I felt like a thief um, and there was like a it felt like i couldn't quite move beyond plagiarism even though like i revealed myself as do you know like i'm saying i'm doing this but there was like very much the feeling like this isn't mine to use even though i asked permission and i asked for it i still kept feeling like this is not mine to use and it must have you know and i'll like I'll read a book and think like, oh, I, you know, I need to use the word bread in some, you know, I'll see the word bread and then think, oh, I need to use that word bread in something I'm writing, and I don't feel that, that doesn't feel like, you know, um, uh, an act of theft, but in doing this, and I think it was the whole process of like going in, rummaging through the trash bags, saying, here I am. This is what I'm doing. Um, I'm just going to take these over here and write some other poem. I could never claim it as my own um, in any way. So maybe that's where I feel like it became a failure, like it wouldn't be anything I would ever put my name on. Um, yeah. Which reveals me as a total narcissist now. but." <laughs> <laughs>
5: The talk was very interesting. Um, a friend of mine in this room talked about physicality when you're writing. And I'm working on a short story that deals with a junk dealer that I grew up with as, as a kid next door neighbor who collected all kinds of wires and glass and rags and all the rest of this, uh, what they call, schmata or hilaria. I think you understand where I'm coming yes. from. And his physicality idea in writing I think is bridged by what I'd call in your case metaphysicality. Mm -hmm. You're taking the words and images that are discarded by this poet and that poet and someone else and reconstructing, or put it this way, constructing in your own mind what you think um, the worth of this junk could be Mm -hmm. as a writer and as a thinker. Well, in this instance, you're probably doing the exact same thing as a sculptor does and goes to a junkyard and picks up a piece of copper and and, and a lead ingot and glass and uh, some uh, silk and rope and then makes it into some kind of a collage or even uh, a sculpture of sorts. And people pay a lot of money for this. You'll see this junk that's reconstituted artistically in a gallery. So perhaps listening to what you were talking about, the shoe and and the... um, which I found rather striking. This metaphysicality of what you're doing alerts, I think, all kinds of writers to the possibilities that when you are looking at your own work or you're looking at someone else's work and you see the discards that perhaps if they're reshaped Mm. and acquire new textures and new colors and new feelings, uh, you've done something really great. So I guess the bottom line is a question. When you conceived of this idea, to go ahead and make this presentation, and perhaps reflect on your own artwork, did you come away with something different than what you started with?
1: Mm. That's really fascinating. Well, I'll tell you this, and this was very—it was very strange. So while I was working on this lecture, um, like five really. Bad things happened in a row. Um, one of them was my son broke his arm, but then there were other things that had happened um, and it just and a friend of mine said to me, "I know that this is i 'm not accusing you of doing anything wrong, but she said to me, I wonder." somehow, if in the process of asking for things that nobody wants to, like, to, to assemble those things, somehow is inviting a kind of, and this is all very, you know, um, metaphysical, but, you know, but in, in some way, is that inviting some kind of danger into your life somehow? Um, and it was a very, like, assembling all of this was, I thought it would be incredibly pleasurable, because I love, like, as a writer going out and sort of, like, finding my images and assembling them and finding a body for the images, you know, and finding some sort of narrative and characters to hold story and poetry is my favorite thing in the world, and yet the the act of sort of um, meditating on, um, on shmatas, as you say, or like, you know, the rags or um, like what has been like discarded by others um, was very, it was very, it, it was just, it was very uncomfortable. And I did not expect that at all. Because I love collage. I'm so drawn to collage, and you know, I'm obsessed with the prose poem, which is a kind of like, um, you know, often, often like a kind of spinning center out of scraps um, for me. Like I often think of that, the the box of the prose poem, um, like a collage, like holding all of these scraps in place. and um, but the meditating on other people's uh trash and trying to find like some way to talk about that um, was was diffi- was very difficult yeah yeah
3: hi uh
0: yeah. i'm reminded of thrift store shopping yes. uh, like a lot of people here and um i know my sister i shop at thrift stores but my sister will say i'm not going to wear dead people's clothes <laughs> and um i like Wearing other people's clothes because I feel like it connects me to other lives. So I'm, I'm wondering, and I'm sorry I came in late. Maybe you talked about this, but do you get any pleasure from being connected to other people's lives through their words?
1: Through through their through, words. Through through
0: the discarded, you know, lines. I think you said. The, right. The yeah.
1: I mean, I think that going back to what I had said before, like I think that, um, I mean, I love vintage clothes and I love. You know, I love um, walking around um, antique stores and junk shops, and um, but there was something about the lines that ended up. Um, like I want to send them all back, mm-hmm. and apologize, and then change my name. <laughs> no.
2: That seems oh. to sort of. Again, comes back to this presupposition of ownership. Right. Um, it sounds like you weren't weren't happy with what you made because you ultimately didn't feel like you made a new object that was right. your own. Right. And and that's fine. But I I, th- I think, like you're saying, uh, the example you said of seeing the word bread or the image bread, and now bread becomes in your work. I, I think all of our work is sampling of a sort. Right. Uh, and the question is whether or not in the current culture, whether the idea of sampling is, I mean, is it is sampling. Stealing or is sampling homage you know mm-hmm. it, what's the difference between doing a poem like yours or doing a little epigraph of some poet at the top or writing something after x mm-hmm. It seems to me I mean you're talking about actually objects that they gave you the, the, so that, so mm-hmm. there's a i don 't know if there's ownership I guess that's my question. What do, what do you think about ownership
1: I think that's why I in writing this lecture I just kept thinking about the shoe right Um, because the you have March of the whole thing behind March of the Living is you have these Jewish kids marching back through the camps as some sort of you know um, like um, living, breathing beating heart um, as if like you can pump life Back through somehow, and so um, when the boy like takes the shoe, it's in certain ways both his shoe, like he's trying to reclaim something, um, but in many ways it it absolutely does not belong to him. Um, and I think that like as writers, I think that is always the uh, a kind of struggle. I mean. In that case, that's like a very extreme, intense, like um, heartbreaking um, example. But I think just in kind of like that hand reaching out and saying, like, is this mine? Is this part of my story? Like, how can I make this part of my story? Um, I think is always a question that we we need to ask ourselves as writers, right? Like, like you know, how do how do we Um, you know, articulate what has been forgotten or what never was. Um, And so I think that it's just this sort of an ongoing question we need to ask ourselves as we imagine and reimagine our stories um, and and choose our images.
0: One quick last one and then we'll wrap.
3: I was sitting here thinking about um, the shoe um, and the little boy, and also you and the the pieces of writing, and wondering if um, you know you took this took this sample of writing from people that gave it to you, you sort of categorized the group into different types of you know where did where did the pieces come from but like the shoe and the little boy can that little boy ever really know what that shoe meant to that the boy who mm-hmm. originally wore it mm-hmm. and can you ever know what those lines every line meant mm-hmm. to the person who owned it
1: yeah that's and if that's
3: the struggle that that um, you were having
1: yes I mean you said it more beautifully than I could say it I I love that um, and I think um, very very much so that like you pluck something out of its entire history right it's in, um, and and it has to change shape completely um, so yeah thank you for that that thank you